Okay, happy Sunday to everybody. I hope you had a great two days. Uh, 6.30 p.m. already on a Sunday. Time to get ready and start thinking about the week. But you don't have to yet because we're here. I'm here. I'm going to be reading the rest of the book to you. We may be finishing the book today, it looks like. Maybe not, but we might be. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your, ho your, your host and reader for the next hour. I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can help you. Okay, that being done, I want to go ahead and get to reading today. Excuse my throat. Uh, the Salem Witch Trials. We finished all the background stuff for, for the witch trials and all that, and now we're just looking at looking at the history from different perspectives. In fact, we're up to a section of the book that says key interviews, maps, and places. So I'm going to be reading through those. That's why I don't know how far how, how much farther we have in this book, but... Uh, Let's continue. Let's get on with it and continue, shall we? And if you like what you hear today from wherever you're watching from, please be sure to hit that like button. And if you haven't done so already, hit that follow button. Okay, here we go. So key interviews, maps, and places. The history and hauntings of Salem, the witch trials and beyond. And now we're into the beyond part. Okay. First section is called Proctor's Ledge. And we're going to go ahead and read that. Give me a second to get things adjusted. Okay, I will read for an, uh, for an hour. Okay, so here we go. Oh, I hope there's enough in here to read for an hour. <laughs> As mentioned in my interview with Marilyn K. Roach, a team of his historians, a team of his historians, a team of historians were assembled to determine the location of where the witch hangings probably took place. The nod is generally given to Sidney Purley's early research, but a great deal of time and effort went into not only verifying the location, but in constructing a memorial at that site. The Proctor Ledge Memorial is a beautiful setting dedicated to the 19 people who were executed there during the 1692 witch trials. The names and dates they were hanged are engraved in stones. The oak tree, the oak tree sapling, is meant to, to symbolize endurance and dignity. Martha Lyon is a landscape architect who designed Proctor's Ledge. It was built through a 174,000 Community Preservation Act grant and donations. Proctor's Ledge Memorial was built in 2017, during the 325th anniversary of the witch trials. In 2016, it was officially recognized as the site of the hangings. The names listed in stone at the memorial are Bridget Bishop, Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, Rebecca Nurse, Sarah Wilds, George Burroughs, Martha Carrier, John Willard, George Jacobs Sr., John Proctor, Alice Parker, Mary Parker, Ann Puddeter, Wilmot Red, Margaret Scott, Samuel Wardwell, Martha Corey, Barry Etsy, the name of Giles Corey, and those who died in the prison while awaiting the trials are not listed here, as they were not executed at the site. Corey was pressed to death near the old Salem Gaul. Gall, and five others died in prison, both in Boston and Salem. Rebecca Beatrice Brooks, in her wonderful blog, The History of Massachusetts, offered a reference to the hanging location found in a notation in John Adams' diary in 1766. It appears that in the late 18th century, locals still knew that Proctor's Ledge was the site of the executions because, in 1766, John Adams visited his brother-in-law in Salem and wrote in his diary that he had visited the ledge, which he referred to as Witchcraft Hill. A mentioned, a mentioned number of locust trees there we go, there we go, that were later discovered to have grown on Proctor's Ledge. 
quote, John Adams, I'm taking this John Adams quote, returned and dined at Cranch's after dinner, walked to Witchcraft Hill, a hill about a half mile from, from Cranch's, where the famous persons formerly executed for witches were buried. Somebody within a few years has planted a number of locust trees over the graves. As a memorial of that memorable victory over the Prince of Power of the Air, the, this hill is in a large common belonging to the proprietors of Salem and C, and I guess Salem and City. From it, you have a fair view of the town, of the river, the north and south fields, of Marblehead, of Judge Lynn's Pleasure House, and C, of Salem Village, and C, Samuel Adams, 199. Yet, in 1867, historian Charles Wentworth Upham incorrectly identified Gallows Hill as a location of the Salem Witch Trials executions in his book, Salem Witchcraft, although he admitted in the book that it was only a guess and he might not be correct. Moving on. In 1911, a book titled A Short History of the Salem Village Witchcraft Trials by Martin Van Buren, Purley, was published and included a map that identified the Proctor's Ledge as the site of the executions. The map also identified a rocky crevice alongside the ledge as a place where the bodies of the executed were temporarily placed. Here it is. Okay, all right. Moving on. What evidence supports Proctor Ledge as the execution site? Rebecca Beatrice Brooks in her blog, The History of Massachusetts, stated that Sidney Perley's research indicates that similar evidence from another eyewitness, a nurse who was attending John, John Simon's mother as she gave birth to him in 1692, also confirmed Proctor's Ledge as the site. According to a letter written by Dr. Holy Hook after the death of John Simons in 1791, which was later published in Upham's book, the nurse, who was assisting John Simons' mother at, at his birth, later told John that she could see the accused hanging at the execution site from the window of the Simons' house that day. Quote, In the last month there died a man in, his in this town by the name of John Simons, aged a hundred years, lacking about six months having been born in the famous 92. He has told me that his nurse had often told him that while she was attending his mother at the time she lay with him, she lay in with him, she saw from the chamber windows those unhappy people hanging on Gallows Hill who were executed for witches by the delusion of the times. That's Upham 377. Sidney Purley, during his extensive research, identified the location of the house where Simons was born on North Street. He found that other historians had been incorrect in identifying Gallows Hill as the execution site. Purley found that Gallows Hill is not visible from North Street because it is blocked by Ledge Hill, yet Proctor's Ledge was visible. In Sidney Purley's book, Where the Salem Wishes Were Hanged, Essex Institute Historical Collections, Volume 57, Number 1, January 1921, page 1 to 18, he offers several wonderful interviews and clues to Proctor's Ledge location. Everett F. Southwick lived with the great 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 granddaughter, great great, I'm saying great great to many greats, great great granddaughter of John Proctor, hanged for witchcraft in 1692. Mrs. Nichols, and remember, yeah, 1692, Mrs. Nichols, and remembered as a boy that Nichols told him the accused witches were executed near the rocky crevice at Proctor's Ledge. Quote, when a boy, Edward E. Southwick, lived with David Nichols at this place from 1847 to 1852, Mrs. Nichols was a proctor and a 
and the granddaughter of Thorndike Proctor, who was the grandson of John Proctor, who was executed for witchcraft. Mr. Southwick stated to the writer and others that both Mr. and Mrs. Nichols told him that the witches were executed near the crevice. Mr. Southwick also said that an old man who lived with Mr. Nichols and who was named Thorndike Proctor and was a relative of Mrs. Nichols used to take walks with him and he also told Mr. Southwick that the witches were hung near the crevice. Purley, pages 15 to 16. Perhaps the most chilling report was one Purley related from an old family story from the, Buff from the Buffum family. Buffum states that after the executions on August 19, 1692, he could see from his house on Boston Street George Burroughs' exposed hand and foot sticking out of the rocking crevice, out of the rocky crevice. So he later went over that night to cover them so they were no longer visible. The Buffum house can be seen on maps sitting just below Proctor's Ledge in 1692. On the other hand, you cannot see Gallows Hills from his house. Purley from the same book, quote, The distance from the house of Joshua Buffum to the top of the hill, Gallows Hill, would make it improbable that a slightly exposed hand or foot could be seen. In an, air, in an airline, the distance is about 120 rods, which is considerably more than a third of a mile. Not only was the distance great, but the growth of the trees, which must have existed to a greater or lesser extent in the common lands, would necessarily have precluded such a view. From the house of Joshua Buffum to the crevice in, in an airline, the distance is only about 53 rods, and the view unimpeded, as one had to look down the hill and over the marsh and river only. Purley, pages 14 to 15. Okay. From Rebecca Beatrice Brooks, the History of Massachusetts blog. Another piece of evidence is a local legend that states that after Rebecca Nurse's execution, her son Benjamin rowed a boat that night from a creek near the nurse homestead into the North River, right up to the base of the hill where the execution took place, so he could claim his mother's body and give her a Christian burial on her property. There are no waterways that never have been leading to Gallows Hill or anywhere near it. Yet, at the time of the trials, the North River used to spill out into a large bay that pooled into Brickford's Pond, into Brickford's Pond which has since been filled in at the base of Proctor's Ledge thus allowing Benjamin Nurse direct access in his boat to the execution site. In addition, Proctor's Ledge also has a rocky crevice running alongside the ledge, and, according to Robert Califf, the bodies of the executed prisoners were temporarily placed in a rocky crevice at the execution site after they were cut down. All of the evidence confirms that Proctor's Ledge is the site of the Salem Witch Trials executions. Please read Rebecca Beatrice's book, Brooks, full account from her blog, The History of Massachusetts. She has many wonderful articles spotlighting the fascinating history of Massachusetts. My thanks to her for allowing me to include excerpts from that blog. Next section, The Gallows Hill Project. The Gallows Hill Project prepared a series of questions and answers explaining how they confirmed Proctor's Ledge as the execution site for the accused witches. How did they pin down the site? Marilyn Roach discovered a few key lines of eyewitness testimony in a Salem witch trials court record from August 19, 1692. The record quotes the defendant, Rebecca Ames, E-A-M-E-S, who had been on her way to the court in the custody of her guards and traveled along the Boston Road, was just round below the execution site. A few hours later, she appeared. 
to appear at the Salem, the Salem court for a preliminary examination. The magistrate asked Ames whether she had witnessed the execution that took place earlier that morning as she was passing by. She explained that she was at the house below the hill and that she saw some folks at the execution. Roach determined that the house below the hill was most likely the McCarter house or one of its neighbors on Boston Street. The McCarter house was still standing in 1890 at 19 Boston Street. Whatever evidence, what other evidence is there? Professor Benjamin Ray conducted research that pinpointed the McCarter house's location and worked with geographic information system specialist Chris Gist of the University of Virginia Scholars Lab to determine whether, in fact, it was possible for a person standing at the side of the house on Boston Street to see the top of Proctor's Ledge. Gist produced a view, a view shed analysis which determined that the top of Proctor's Ledge was clearly visible. Why did they rule out the top of Gallows Hill? There are several reasons why the location at the top of Gallows Hill does not work. First, it would not have been visible from the McCarter house and its neighbors on Boston Street. It also would not have been visible from the Simons house on North Street, where another person is known to have witnessed some of the executions. Furthermore, we know that the eight victims hanged on September 22nd were driven by cart to the execution site. It would have been next to impossible to get a cart full of eight victims up a steep and rocky slope that lacked a road. Finally, executions were meant to be public events, so everyone could witness the terrible consequences that awaited those who committed witchcraft and other serious crimes. The top of Gallows Hill would be much more difficult to access than Proctor's Ledge. Did the project find anything on Gallows Hill? Professor Peter Sablock carried out geoarchaeological remote sensing on the site with a team of his geology students. Ground-penetrating radar and electronic soil resistivity did not disturb the soil, do not disturb the soil, but can tell us about the ground underneath. His tests indicated there was very little soil on Proctor's Ledge. There are only a few small cracks in the ledge, and here the soil is less than three feet deep. Certainly not deep enough to bury people. This finding is in keeping with oral traditions that the families of the victims came under cover of darkness to recover loved ones and rebury them in family cemeteries. There is no indication that there are any human remains on the Proctor's Ledge site. What about the gallows? The numerous surviving documents from the witch trials contain no mention of a gallows. Indeed, the only time Gallows Hill was used for executions was in 1692. Therefore, the team believes that the executions were carried out from a large tree, a common tradition at the time. The remote sensing research supports this conclusion, as no trace structures were discovered, though, admittedly, a temporary wooden gallows would leave very little evidence behind for archaeologists to discover. Source, the Gallows Hill Project. The Interviews The Salem Wish Museum, an interview with Rachel Christ, Director of Education. In the following interview with Rachel Christ, I will be using RP for Rebecca Pittman and RC to designate Rachel Christ comments. RP, what is your capacity at the Salem Wish Museum? RC, I'm the Director of Education. Within this role, I've had my hand in a lot of pots. I do all the outreach with students and teachers, authors, and journalists. I do a lot of working with teachers. I Skype into classrooms, do classes on the witch trials and the crucible. I buy all the books for our bookshop and keep an eye out for new books on, on the witch trials. I also update all our exhibits. Currently, I'm working on updating our second exhibit entitled Witches Evolving Perceptions. 
This exhibit focuses on the image of a witch and how it has changed and evolved over time. This is an opportunity to step back from the Salem trials and focus on the history of witchcraft that led to 1692. This past winter, we added a new timeline on the wall. We're working on updating our main presentation as well. So essentially, I work on keeping all the educational content up to date. It sounds odd, but the scholarship of the Salem Witch Trials is changing all the time. So my job is to keep us up to date with the scholarship. It's a very detailed piece of history, RP. You have a theater and the round feeling there with the with the tableaus and and, and, and <laughs> the tableaus and, and vignettes, vignettes, vignettes. How do you filter down all the components of the witch trials into a thirty-minute presentation? How did you choose the key elements? RC. I wasn't here when that first presentation was created in 1972. We based the original presentation off of Mar off of Marion Star Starkey's book, The Devil in Massachusetts. It was one of the leading books on the Salem Witch Trials at the time. We are in the process of updating the presentation simply because the scholarship has changed so much since that book came out in 1949. The idea was to take the big pieces of the Salem Witch Trials, for example, the trial of Rebecca Nurse, the hanging of George Burroughs, the pressing of Giles Corey, and combine them with some of the more refined aspects of the story, such as the girls sitting together in a kitchen, the environment of the Putnam House, prisoners languishing in jail. It was meant to give a snapshot of the trials. The trials were just a year. It, it's really quite a short period of time. It wasn't too challenging to encapsulate some of the big moments from that year. The big problem was we only have 30 minutes. There was so much more that could go into it. RP. I thought it was interesting that you chose the Putnam House as, as one of the as, as one of the vignettes. I'm going to say vignettes. It's probably vignettes. Okay. Instead of a scene in Reverend Paris's house with the tuba. I thought it very appropriate to spotlight Anne Putnam Jr. as she was such a key figure in the trials and to end, with the, end the presentation with her apology was very strong. It was very easy to follow your narration by using the tableaus. RC. It makes the Salem Witch Trials more accessible by presenting it with the tableaus. I think anyone can come in and grasp it. We see all ages, scholars of people here, with their families. We've tried to make it, make it a clear presentation that encapsulates the basic theme. RP. You mentioned doing some updates. Are you thinking of possibly updating? The script or changing the figures? RC, it's mainly the script. I think the figures in the tableaus will remain relatively the same. We are in the process of updating the scholarship as some theories have gone out of date. For example, Tatuba's role in the trials has been debated by scholars rather extensively. So that's something we'll be looking at. RP, when did you open the Salem Witch Museum? RC, May of 72. RSP, you suit. You, you see it. How many people in the main theater room? RC, about 120. RP, Salem has a kind of love-hate relationship with the witch trial popularity. Do you have a personal, excuse me, do you have a personal feeling about it? RC, I think Salem is a pretty unique example of our tourism industry really started in the early 20th century. There were vague whispers about it, but it didn't really start until Bewitched filmed here in the early 1970s. Arthur Miller came in the 50s to research the crucible, and that kind of shined a light on Salem. I personally think it goes so much farther. Obviously, Salem has become the big Halloween celebration. In the 20th century, tourism started to grow here. 
and not just with the witch trial popularity. We have the New England draw and the House of Seven Gables. When all the tourism dollars came in, it really helped the economy here. The history of witchcraft is so much more than the Salem witch trials. It's really living and breathing here. You see the stereotypical witch everywhere that Hollywood created. And then you also have bewitched, which is another definition of popular witchcraft. We have a pretty healthy Wiccan population here, which is another example of a newer definition of the witch. In our museum, we talk about the definition of a witch and how it's changed and evolved so dramatically over time. I think it's pretty interesting to see how this is still a living, breathing thing and how dramatically the term has changed over time. RP. Is Wicca a religion? RC. Yes. It's a legally recognized religion in the United States. Wicca is, Wicca is a neo-pagan religion. These are, these are based on older earth-based religions that go way back. It's a private practice practice typically. You won't see them making a show of themselves. RP, we spoke of Hollywood stereotypes when discussing today's concept of a witch. I noticed in the witch trials transcripts that the word broomstick was never used when the girls stated seeing specters riding through the air. They always used the word pole. It speaks once again to the stereotype we have of a witch. RC, a broom is something you do see in other areas. In Europe, during the early modern period, which is the 15th, 18th century, that's when, the, that's when witch hunts were taking place, and there were reports of people flying on broomsticks. RP. You have an amazing artifact there at the Salem Witch Museum, one of the actual beams from the Salem jail where the prisoners were held during their questioning in the trials. Do people comment on it? RC. A lot of people comment on it. It's a surreal feeling to be able to see it. The original jail was constructed circa 1680. Around 1760, the original wooden jail was rebuilt, and it is said that some of the timber from the original structure was reused when building the new jail. The old jail site was demolished in the 1950s, and at this time, construction workers found 7th century beams. Several of these beams were salvaged and given to the Peabody Essex Museum, the Witch Dungeon Museum, and our museum. RP, have you noticed any paranormal activity inside the Witch Museum? RC, this building was built in 1840, so it's very old. Yes, sometimes odd things will happen, but you can almost always explain them. For example, books will fall off the shelves, but it's because the floor is a little slanted. A typical visitor experience in our museum takes 45 minutes to an hour. Vis visitors view two history presentations. Our first presentation is audiovisual and takes place in a large auditorium. Stage sets are eliminated in the time with a narration which presents a point-by-point -point overview of the events of the witch trials that took place in Salem in 1692. The presentation is followed by a guided tour. This tour focuses on the history of, of the image of the witch and the European witch trials that led up to 1692. You can visit the Salem Witch Museum's website at salemwitchmuseum.com for ticket information, hours, and much more. An interview with with Marilyn K. Roach, author, historian, and artist. For the purpose of this interview, Rebecca Pittman will be designated by the initials RP and Marilyn K. Roach by the initials MR. Marilyn K. Roach is the author of several books on the Salem Witch Trials, including In the Days of the Salem Witchcraft Trials, Six Women of Salem, The Untold Story of the Accused, and Their Accusers in the Salem Witch Trials, and the Salem Witch Trials, a day-by-day -day chronicle of a community under siege. She has a large hand-illustrated map of Salem Village in 1692 
showing the location of all the homes and pertinent locations associated with the witch trials. I highly recommend it. You can purchase it at the Salem Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. Her drawings have blessed many archival websites, blogs, and books. Marilyn was instrumental in the research used to discern the correct location of the Salem Witch Trial hangings, and was part of the team who instigated a memorial to the victims that now stands at, the Proc at Proctor's Ledge on Gallows Hill in Salem, Massachusetts. RP, your book, The Salem Witch Trials, A Day-by-Day -Day Chronicle of a Community Under Siege, is so amazing. I also bought... I also bought your map of Salem Village in the Salem Wish Museum. How long did the map take you to create? MR. Oh, years and years. It's based mainly on Sidney Purley's work. RP. Do you have ancestors from the witch trials? Is that what got you interested in the Salem trials? MR. I have ancestors from the era that got me interested. I found relatives around the edges. There are two uncles, Judge Samuel Seawall, who later apologized, and John Alden, who was arrested as a witch. RP. Speaking of your map, when they took the prisoners from the Salem jail up to Gallows Hill for their execution, did they cross the North River? MR. There's a creek that came down from the upper part of the Gallows Hill that flowed into where the river bends, sort of a right angle there. It's all filled in now. It was a tidal inlet at the time with, with a causeway and a bridge, so there was a bridge to go across. RP. So the cart carrying the prisoners did have to go across a bridge? MR. Yes, it crossed that smaller creek but it was still the main road from Salem to elsewhere. As they left the jail, they went along what is today Essex Street, and then you turn into, into Boston Street. RP. After reading several reports, including yours, it sounds like the spectators followed the cart all the way from the jail to Gallows Hill, or what we know now is Proctor's Ledge. MR. I would assume so. It was supposed to be a lesson of what not to do, and it was also exciting in a, in a, in a macabre sort of way. RP. I know the Wabonki Indians were mainly responsible for the attacks happening in Maine and New Hampshire. Was Salem afraid of imminent attacks? MR. Oh, yes. While some surviving members of the local tribes had scattered after King Philip's War and joined larger groups of Indians to the north. When French Canada became involved, you were never sure if you were going to be attacked. That's why Salem Village had a watch house where the militiamen, where the militia had stationed men at night to watch for attacks. Andover was attacked, which is very close to Salem Village. RP. There was so much woodland there in the area. It must have been very frightening to be in a remote farmhouse surrounded by trees that could be sheltering Indians. MR. I'm not sure how much was cleared and how much was wooded. Obviously, they cleared trees for farming and to build houses. There are more trees there now than there were back then, or even back to the Civil War. There was enough cover, certainly, to sneak up on a home. RP. Poppets featured in the witch trials, in that they were supposed to be a tool of the devil to inflict pain on a victim. Were all poppets considered bad? Were children not allowed to have dolls in a home in 1692? MR. Excuse me, they had toys. If it looks like a doll, I assume that was okay. But if it was crudely made, like you had thrown something together to use in magic, that would look suspicious. When they questioned Candy, the slave from Barbados, about poppets, her answer sounded like she just used something that she found lying around. The Lacey girl, when she was arrested, the deputy, or whoever it was to take her into custody, had orders to search the house, and they found some things that looked, like, that looked suspicious, like old scraps of cloth, cloth rolled up. RP. 
We have an image of the Puritan way of life that shows them as strict, denying old pleasures or sense of frivolity. In your book, you mention that they did have dances or played a game of nine pins. Would you elaborate on that, please? MR. Men and women did not dance together, but they did dance. Even Increase Mather stated that dancing was a natural expression of joy, similar to dancing a jig. But couples did not dance together. Nine pins is similar to what we call bowling today, with smaller balls. RP. Marilyn, for me, the turning point in the witch trials is when the adults ask the girls, who were just beginning to show signs of afflictions, who ails thee, instead of what ails thee, which, which is what they had been asking them. It went from a general diagnosis of the girls being under an evil hand to naming someone specifically for tormenting them through witchcraft. What are your thoughts? MR. Yes. The girls assumed the adults knew best when names were suggested, and that's when the spectral evidence began. RP. I noticed several fortune-telling devices mentioned during this period of history. The Venus class was the one mentioned as something Tatuba was using to tell the girls what occupation their future husband might have. What is a sieve and shears? MR. It's like an Ouija board idea. The shears then were made out of one strip of metal so that the sharp blade and a hoop in the middle, and then another sharp blade so that you're pushing them together to shear, like with sheep. A sieve is a wooden hoop with, a wooden, with, with woven mesh, possibly horsehair, on the bottom. It wasn't for delicate cooking. Apparently, you clutched the wooden hoop part with either side of the shears so that it's held up, and one person is pushing on one side of the springy part of the shears, and the other one is pushing on the other side so that they are sus suspending the hoop between the shear blades. This would turn an answer to their questions, like left or right. It was balanced delicately, and any movement of your hand would make it swing a bit. It's moving based on their slight movements that they aren't aware of, because it is so slight. Quote, turn clockwise if he loves me, turn counterclockwise if he loves me not, kind of thing. RP. It's similar to how a planchette reacts, correct? Reacts, correct? It's responding to the ideomotor response. Ideomotor response, there it is. MR, yes. It's the small muscle movements that we aren't conscious we are making, based on what's going on in the subconscious mind. RP, what is the Bible and key form of fortune-telling from that era? MR, if you have a big door key and you put it inside a big book and tie it shut, so that the book is now somewhat convex and laying on the table, and it's now kind of a rot and it's now kind of rocking on the table, and you touch it, and your motor skills make it turn a bit. It was found that it, it was found that the tome of Shakespeare was used this way, and the key was inserted in a, in a section of Romeo and Juliet. So someone must have been asking about love or romance, Bible and key divination. Okay. RP, I noticed in your book that there were quarrels over land boundaries, especially between Topsfield and Salem Village. What was the main contention? MR, the boundaries were not drawn up really well, and the land tended to overlap onto each other. There were disputes between the Endicotts and the Allens about the farm the nurse family had bought. The contention was over who was to inherit the land. RP. Salem Village had their own watch house to keep a lookout for Indian attacks. Was it located across from Ingersoll's Ordinary where the church stands now? 
MR. I believe so. It was on a little hill then, so they had a good view all around them. RP. Maryland. I went to the Paris site in Danvers, where the stone foundation of his home can be seen. I believe in your book you state that the house faced south to catch the sun. So that means that if you're standing at the foundation stones, where the marker is now, you'd be facing the front door, correct? MR. Yes, where the gate and the fence is. RP. Do you find it interesting, then, that the stairs of the cellar would be around the corner to the right of the front door instead of at the back of the house? MR. The cellar was under the parlor, the room to the left of the front door, and the stairs from it opened into the hall to the right of the front door. The hall was the all-purpose room, which would house the kitchen hearth. In the back of the hall is a little foundation which might have been under the lean-to. The second cellar hole beyond the parlor was dug in the 18th century when they put in an additional one. When they put an addition on. RP. If the parsonage have a study, different films show that Reverend Paris show Reverend Paris is having a private study. MR. I would think he would need one, and it's only a guess. But I think it was one of the upstairs rooms. Yes, it was upstairs, because in his notes that he made after 1693, the nurse family is mad at him, obviously, and they come upstairs to talk to him. He writes that they all came upstairs instead of one at a time. They were headed to a study. This was found in the church records, which you can see at the Danvers Archival Center's website. RP. I'd love to ask you about your involvement with Proctor's Ledge. I read accounts that a few houses in 1692 could actually see the hangings from their windows. Is that true? MR. Yes. Rebecca Ames was taken to the, to the McCarter house on her way to the Salem jail. The house was near the base of Gallows Hill. She said she saw the executions from the house. Pearlie saw it because that house was still standing until, 1914, until the 1914 fire, which did so much damage to Salem. RP, were you one of the main people involved in the discovery of the Proctor's Ledge location? MR, it was actually discovered by Sidney Pearlie back in 1901, and then he explained his reasons for assuming it was that location in 1921. In 1997, I found Rebecca Ames' comment on seeing, on seeing the hangings, and then using Pearlie's articles on where the houses were in those days, I put it together that it had to be the lower ledges and not the top of the hill. I published a pamphlet on it back then. Elizabeth Peterson, director of the witch house, which is John, Jonathan Corwin's house, got a number of us who were obviously interested in the subject to sit down together and discuss how the site could be better preserved. Professors Emerson Baker and Peter Sublock of Salem State University Professor Benjamin Ray of the University of Virginia, filmmaker Town Phillips, and myself. The site is on city land, purchased by Salem in 1936 to be a witch memorial. Nothing was ever done with it, and it had, it had trash all over it. We wanted it, to be a proper, we wanted it to be properly honored with some kind of a marker and to make sure the city didn't designate it as unnecessary land, which had almost happened a couple of times. We worked with the city to make sure everyone agreed that the site should be protected. You don't want to encourage large mobs of people coming up there, but you don't want, want it to be forgotten either. Our press release to announce that site have been found and verified went viral. The city hired landscaped architect Martha Lyons to design a proper memorial. Benjamin Ray went to the computer department of the University of Virginia and used a mapping program to show if you were at the McCarter House. There's a laundromat there now or several of the other houses that were along that stretch of 1692. If you could see the lower ledges and what was going on there, but you really couldn't see what was going on at the top of the hill, what we call Gallows Hill. 
And the thing about the com computerized program is that you could really see what was going on without the trees and today's apartment buildings getting in your way. That helped to verify it. The memorial's dedication was appropriate and moving. A lot, of a lot of descendants of the accused were there to honor their ancestors who had died on that spot. RP, do you think there was a gallows erected for the executions, or do you feel it was a ladder propped up against a tree bough? MR, if there, was a if there was a convenient tree, there would be no reason to waste time and money to build a scaffold. Locust trees are not very strong, and they are a bit brittle, so I don't think it was a locust tree as many have suggested. Whatever it was, it had to be big enough to accommodate eight firebrands of hell. That implies something horizontal that might be a good oak tree. I've seen illustrations from other eras that show a ladder going up into a tree, and the victims would have to be carried up the ladder. RP. Do you believe the victims were really thrown into a ravine and some dirt thrown over them after they were hung, rather than a proper burial? We know some of the bodies were taken home by families, such as Rebecca Nurse. But what of the others? MR. I do believe it was a hasty temporary burial. I don't see Sarah Good's husband exerting much energy to dig her up and bring her home. RP. When I read that George Burroughs' pants came off as they dragged his dead body to the ravine, it was such a heart-wrenching image. MK. Yes, it was. Keep slipping that way. Traditionally, the victim's clothes belonged to the hangman, so he could keep it or sell it. So if you were wearing nice clothes, they would remove them and put older clothes on you. It was mentioned that another prisoner's pants were put on burrows, so presumably not as nice a pair as he was wearing. RP. I heard rumors that the Salem jail would flood at times during the witch trials. Do you think it's true? MR. No, I think there were some problems with the, with, with the later jail. There's not much of a description of the Salem jail where the prisoners were held. There were a couple of reports of prisoners tunneling under the wall and escaping before 1692, which would imply, which would imply, imply, I'm sorry, which would imply you were at ground level, not down below the surface. The river would have been a lot closer then because the terrain had changed, but the jail was on a small hill. There were bills from the jailer for firewood, which shows that probably, which shows they probably had some form of heat in the winter. Candles were expensive, and there was probably straw on the floor so it's doubtful they were giving candles for light at night. RP, how in the world did some of those people endure an entire year in that environment, through the frigid winters and humid summers? MR, facetiously, they had good immune systems. RP, what could the families of the prisoners bring them while in jail? MR, there were reports that they brought them food and clothing, if they could afford it. It was a minimum of items. RP, Bridget Bishop's apple orchard is said to have been where Turner Seafood is today. Is that correct? MR, approximately, yes. RP, I've heard there are pirate tunnels under Salem. Is that true? MR, that came later. There were access tunnels, and I have seen pictures of doors and easements as if there had been something there. RP, so many components came together to form the environment of the Salem witch trials. Indian warfare, Paris's dire warnings of the devil from the pulpit, the absence of a charter through much of it, the magistrates not being formally trained at law, the boredom of winter, etc. If only one of those components had been missing, do you think it would have been turned into the, into the wildfire that it, that it did? MR. Possibly not. There were so many things all at once. A critical mass of things gone wrong. If one was removed, maybe it wouldn't have. I don't go with the conspiracy theories some people advance. 
as if Paris and the Putnams got together and planned it. Next, uh, next interview, Richard Trask. Town archivist and curator of the Danvers Archival Center. Arthur, author of The Devil Hatch Been Raised, The Devil Hatch Been Raised, a documented history of a documentary history of the Salem Witch Trials, of the Salem Village Witchcraft Outbreak of March 1692. The Archival Center houses a wonderful and diverse collection of two-dimensional materials that relates to the history of Salem Village and Danvers from the 17th century to the present. Our books, manuscripts, maps, photographs, newspapers, and other materials are available to anyone interested in finding out more about Salem Village witchcraft. Any aspect or era of Danvers history, local architecture, and local geology. Okay. Interested persons are urged to call, email, or visit us during open hours. The Danvers Archival is at www.danverslibrary.org. For this interview, RP will represent Rebecca Pittman, and RT will designate Richard Trask. RP, I was fascinated with your research in the location of the parsonage where Reverend Samuel Paris lived. I understand you were the one that inst that that, in that instigated the, the test to find it and evacuate the stone foundation. How did you go about locating the site? RT, I used what was available to me at the time. Back in 1970, we didn't have the archives. We didn't have a lot of the information in one location. The Charles Upham book, Salem Witchcraft, had a general location and some other secondary sources, sources also gave me an idea of where it was located, off of Center Street, which was the main roadway in Salem Village. And I got some aerial maps in Danvers to see if it would show up there, and it didn't. There was also some oral history and a tradition that said it was located behind 67 Center Street. There was a sign that had been put up in the 1930s, pointing to a cart road that led to a large empty lot. The sign read that at the end of this cart road was the location of the Paris House site. So I had the general location of where it was and found out that the owner was a school teacher by the name of Alfred Hutchinson, who was related to Rebecca Nurse. I asked if it would be possible to do a little probing on his property, and he said yes. I contacted an author whose book was called Hidden America that had been written maybe 10 years earlier by a fellow named Roland W. Robbins. Among other accomplishments, he had located the birthplace of Thomas Jefferson and had done a major excavation in Saugus, Massachusetts, which, had not, which is not too far from Danvers of 17th century ironworks. He also discovered the location of, of, uh, ugh, excuse me, of Thorio's dwelling at Walden Pond. He was not a professional. He was not university trained, but he had an innate ability to be able to discover things. I wrote to him. He lived in Lincoln, Massachusetts, about 20 miles from here, and asked him if he would like to help me discover the site of the Paris house. He did, and for the first year or so, and for the first year or so, he basically did it out of the goodness of his heart. I got some of my friends, including my future wife, Ethel, and we would spend one or two days a weekend on the open space in the backyard of Mr. Hutchinson. Robbins would probe with an iron rod, which he was famous for. And by holding onto the rod and sticking it in the ground, he could determine the kind of soil. He would obviously hit rocks, and if he found a pattern, then it could be a foundation. We also dug, we, we also dug little test trenches, and we finally came across a few holes with fragments of glass and pottery in it. So we knew that we were in an occupied area. 
We followed along every foot and a half until we hit upon what was the foundation, which was about three feet below the surface. From there, we began excavating. I wasn't that knowledgeable in archaeology other than what reading numerous books. Archaeology is a very specific science, as once you disturb something, you must have, do you must have documented your work, or it will be lost. When the house was torn down, all they did was throw dirt and rubbish into the foundation itself. So we excavated it, and it took about two seasons, and we came up with three foundations associated with the 1681 to 1784 house. The original, the original thought was to dig it up, take pictures and notes, and fill it in again. But we found it so interesting, and Mr. Hutchinson agreed that he allowed us to leave the excavation open. Eventually, we got a stonemason to put the foundation back to the top of the soil and put a split rail fence around it. Mr. Hutchinson allowed people to go onto his property for many years, and then in the late 1980s, he was going to move to Maine, and we were able to, with grant from the state, as well as local volunteer money, purchase that portion of the property and make it into a small mini park for the town. It's been like that since we dedicated it in 1990. It was a great project that involved a lot of kids and adults over many years. Two of the kids who worked on the project eventually became professional archaeologists. So, it's there. A little bit out of the way. All of the artifacts we found, tens of thousands of artifacts, most of them pretty much small fragments, gave us a good idea of a colonial parsonage that had about a 100-year occupancy. It was a very interesting project and one that allowed me to do other things later in town, including the establishment of the archives here. It's unusual for a, for a municipality to have a tax-supported tax archives. Okay, moving on. I'm just looking at some different photos. When I was growing up in Danvers, witchcraft was kind of taboo. It was always a subject centered around sadness concerning the witchcraft, and Danvers was always happy to let Salem have the credit on the tourists. When I began the excavation process, there were a lot of people in town who were not happy about it because it was like bringing up a sore subject. There were two matronly ladies who lived on the street on the other side of the cart road that led into the parsonage, and I can remember we tried to get the local schools involved, especially the local Highland High School. Highland School. We would invite the kids to come down and watch us, and in some cases, sift for some artifacts in the soil we had taken out in the cellar hole itself. As the kids were coming into the site, the two ladies across the street were shaking their fists at them, saying, why are you bringing this up? You shouldn't be talking about this. So, because it was related to the witchcraft, and we were doing things that excited the public and unearthing things that hadn't been seen for 300 years, it became a fairly well-known project. The Associated Press picked it up, and did a feature piece with, with photographs were circulated around the country. Walter Cronkite talked about it on the CBS Evening News. It brought a lot of positive publicity, and I think it helped change the minds of a lot of the townspeople. We were trying to say, yes, the witch trials were a very bad thing. All of the institutions failed. But what you did have was individuals, some nice, some not so nice, who actually became heroic when they believed that the truth was more important than life itself. There's that's something that should be remembered and, and emulated. We put a positive spin on it, and later, during the 300th anniversary, the whole town got involved, and and the whole town got involved, and we were able to have a year-wide commemoration of the witchcraft. Thirty years earlier, that never would have happened. R.P. You make such a beautiful point. The integrity of these people, who would not renounce their faith even in the face of death, 
is so much more poignant than the actual madness that went on during the witchcraft outbreak. You have done a lot to be proud of, Richard. RT, well, thank you. It was an amazing project to be part of. RP, why do you think the Paris house was set so far back from the road? RT, they wouldn't have considered it that way. A lot of houses sat back. It always faced in a southerly direction to get the best exposure to the winter sun. It could have been because the well was located there. It wasn't like a neighborhood like we think of today. It was scattered homesteads along a somewhat well-traveled street. RP. Would the Walcotts have been in the Paris closest neighbor? Would have been the Paris's closest neighbor? RT. Yes, the Walcotts were two stone were, were two um were two stones throw away from the parsonage, and in the opposite direction was Ingersoll's ordinary, which was about the same distance away. RP. Now the Walcott house is no longer standing, correct? RT. No, we have an approximate location for it, and it also sat back from the road to Andover, quite away from the quite a ways back from the road. RP. Well, the Paris family had trekked down the cart trail to the road, turned left, walked to Ingersoll's, and turned left again to get to the meeting house where Paris spent so much of his time, or would they have cut through the woods next to the parsonage? RT. At that time, in 1692, there weren't as many trees. Everything was open. The cart road, which now leads to the parsonage, actually went all the way through to what is now Forest Street, which was an old Indian trail. That was another roadway in the 17th century. So Paris would have just gone down the cart road to Forest Street and taken a right, so he would have been at the meeting house. The corner of Forest Street is about where the meeting house was. RP. There was a lot of testimony about Satan's spectral picnics behind the parsonage in the meadow there. What do you, th what do you think the word behind meant? To the right of the parsonage or to the left or behind it? RT. It's what is now known as Whipple Hill, and it's a little way, way, ways from the parsonage. St. Richard's Church is located at the foot of Whipple Hill today. Apparently, there were some trees on the hill there, and it was where the witches' Sabbaths were supposed to take place. RP. Are there still quite a few homes still extant from the witch trials in Danvers? RT. Salem Village was not just Danvers, but spread out to Middleton and Peabody. In Danvers, we have approximately a dozen or more houses that date to that period. Salem Witch... Salem Village, Danvers, was a farm community, so the homes were spread out. Ipswich, which is about 15 miles from Danvers, has the largest cluster of houses dating to that period. They have the largest concentration of first-period houses that survived. There are several first-period houses here on Center Street. I live in the Haynes House, which is a 1691 house that has, that's right up the road. The next three houses up the road from the Parsonage date to that time period as well. RP. The church across the street from Ingersoll's is where the watch house was located in 1692, correct? RT, yes. It would have been about 30 to 40 feet higher than it is now. RP, is there anything else you'd like to share that you find interesting? RT, there was a very quirky book done a few years back called A Season with a, Season with a Witch. It was by J.W. Oker, a pen name. He came to Salem and spent a month talking to the talking, taking in the Halloween events and talked about what it was like there and the socioeconomic description, the economic description of the area. He wrote a lot about me and my projects. It's a book that goes into things that haven't been described before. It's available on Amazon. I've done a lot of projects on Salem. Okay, excuse me. I've done a lot of a lot of projects on Salem witchcraft. I was the chairman of the Terra Centennial Committee in Danvers. And we did a year's worth of events with major programs covering every one of the execution days. 
We did a sight and sound program for the meeting house at the nurse at the nurse homestead. We buried the bones of George Jacobs Sr., which I had in my custody since the 1960s, at the nurse homestead. I was one of two consultants for the PBS movie Three Solvers for Sarah, which I still feel is the best rendition of the Salem Witch events. The barn at the nurse homestead is the actual frame of the house that belonged to Endicott, who gave testimony at the witch trials. His house was going to be torn down, but a group of friends and I dismantled and preserved the 1681 frame. We found some, some hex symbols, which was a way of warding off evil when we were disassembling the house. Okay, um, okay, I'm gonna, I gotta double check the time here. Hang on, guys. I have to see it on screen. Okay, um, see what I can do in eight minutes here. I don't want to, let me see how long this section is. Yeah, I'm going to stop right where I'm at. And we'll continue next Sunday. It looks like we're, um, let me do this. It looks like we're getting there. We're getting there. And, uh, 523. Because I had to pre-record today. Thank you. In order to do this without sending it out on YouTube, I can only go for an hour. If I go beyond an hour, StreamYard won't let me, you know, um, won't release it for me. So I can only take it to be an hour. So this is why we're stopping at this time when we have around eight minutes left. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming and listening this, this afternoon. I know I've been kind of, or well, for you it's afternoon. For me it's evening. It's Friday evening right now. But I want to thank you all. Tomorrow at 5 p.m. Pacific is going to be Bart Seabrell, we're going to be talking about, uh, look at me turn, I love it. We're going to be talking about the fake moon landing. Or should I say the alleged fake moon landing, right? We're going to be talking about that tomorrow, so join me at 5 uh, at five p.m. Pacific, okay? Anyway, I uh, enjoyed reading for you guys today, and I hope you enjoyed it too. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here at California House Radio. Also, if you're watching from Facebook, Excuse me. If you're watching from Facebook and you haven't done so already, be sure to share. Be sure to like and share and 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 follow. You know, just follow me. Looking for followers and likes. Give me some thumbs up on this. Also, same thing with YouTube. If you're watching from YouTube, uh, be sure to subscribe if you haven't done so already. I've got more than 542 videos sitting over there, and I'm sure there's something you'll find that you like because I don't always do ghost or paranormal related stuff. All right, guys. I will see you tomorrow. 5 p.m. Pacific. Bye.